Hi, I'm Lorraine Stack, International Advisory and Sales Leader at Marsh Captive Solutions. Hi, this is Vince Gauze with the Arizona Captive Program. Hi, my name is Bill Fitzpatrick. I'm with Deutsche Post DHL, and you're listening to the Global Captive Podcast. Welcome captives and captive friends to episode 8 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. If you haven't already done so, then please do visit our website, www.globalcaptivepodcast.com. You will find all the previous episodes there, as well as photos and biographies of the 30-plus guests we have featured in the last three months. But my next guest and co-host for this episode is the ever-friendly and expert Lorraine Stack, International Advisory and Sales Leader at Marsh Captive Solutions. Lorraine, welcome to the pod. Hi, Richard. Uh, Delighted to be here. First time in St. Bottles building uh, in Houndsditch. I got a bit lost coming here this morning, which is much expected, uh, but found our way. And uh, I've met some nice new JLT, ex-JLT colleagues this morning and uh, some old friends as well wandering around this building. So happy to be here. Listen, speaking of uh, traveling, how was Airmic this week? It was great. Yeah, traveling just up to Yorkshire in Harrogate. I actually went to university in York, so it was nice to get back up to uh, Yorkshire again. My first Airmic as part of the Airmic team, I've been as a journalist plenty of times in the past and what we tried to do this year was actually get a little bit more captive content onto the agenda so we have a learning hub now which is kind of um, TED talk style uh, sessions we had three uh, presentations on captives uh, one was on letters of credit uh, by our friends at Ravenscroft and then we had an R&Q session actually on uh, managing uninsured liabilities and um, some risk consultants from risks discussed about uh, corporate um, insuring corporate risks in the captive so Watch this space. I think next year we'll have even more captive content on the agenda. So hopefully I can tempt people like yourselves over to uh, Airmic next year in Edinburgh. Okay. Um, So Lorraine, when I got in touch with you a few weeks ago to see if you'd be interested in joining me on a future episode, I was very pleasantly surprised to hear you'd already been listening and were maybe even hopefully waiting a call up uh, to to one of these episodes. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have been listening, Richard, and I love the format. You know, I remember you and I talking years ago. Mm. Remember you talking about fireside yeah. chats, your captive fireside chats. <laughs> yeah, that chats. idea was a bit more out there. That was more like a glass of whiskey and a cigar oh, that's, that's, fire or something. That's <laughs> what I was hoping for. So no whiskey and no cigar. But uh, but no, no. L- listen, well done for um, for bringing this concept, you know, to fruition in this medium podcast. I listen to them all the time. Great. And so I really, I really like these. And I'm, you know, th- about the timing, yes, I was kind of wondering when you were going to call. <laughs> but um, actually, I'm glad you, you waited a bit because, you know, the timing is great. You know, I'm delighted to be here and we're going to be talking about the landscape report, which has just been released. Um, so looking forward to that. Um, this episode is as varied as ever. As well as Lorraine being here for the duration, we will also hear from Bill Fitzpatrick, Vice President of Corporate Risk Benefits at Deutsche Post DHL, on one of the largest captive-backed international employee benefits programs in the world, and also Vincent Goss, Chief Captive Analyst at the Arizona Department of Insurance. But first, Lorraine, it's great timing, as you said, to have you on, because Marsh have just released its annual captive report, which provides excellent detail on the portfolio of captives under your management. I know it's always uh, a highlight for the captive press, as it does give a really valuable insight into trends across the captive spectrum, both geographically and on the kind of scale of large to middle market captives, because Marsh does have a very uh, diverse portfolio. What were your standout highlights to come out of the captive landscape report this year? Firstly, you know, thanks a million for acknowledging the impact of this report. You know, this is our 12th year uh, producing it, and we're very proud of it. 
big team across our practice who produces this. Um, and, you know, it really is a labor of love every year. And I, I, I emphasis on labor. Yeah. <laughs> so I think Tracy, our project manager, I think sometimes feels that she's given birth at the end of every year. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's not just about the numbers. This is, you know, we really, we really try every year to bring our collective intellect to focus around what we're seeing and why we're seeing it. We really try to focus on, you know, what, what, what's emerging. Um, and I, you know, I use, I've got all of these reports going back a number of years on my desk still, and I sti- still refer to, back to them yeah. for content on, you know, because we do do, we, we do go into quite a bit of detail. But I think this year I'm particularly proud of it. You know, I think we kind of, I think we cracked the nut, you know, in, in certain areas. So um, this in particular, the highlight for me was how we kind of changed the lens this year to look at the captive from from different points of view around this, you know the organisation, so from different stakeholders and different perspectives. And something else as well, you know, as as consulting um, is kind of the lightning rod for what's coming down the yeah, road. Yeah, um, you know, I would have sensed from feasibility and consulting engagements that we're seeing more third party business, right, was growing. You know, this is growing, but the level of that growth was actually quite a surprise to me. So that was that was an in, that was a highlight. Employee benefits, of course. Yeah, well, we'll come <laughs> you know, on to more. You know, my pet. Yeah, I think we're going to be unpicking that a little bit more with Bill Fitzpatrick later. Um, but also, you know what? Another highlight for me, close to home, uh, would be along the, you know, the geographical trends, and particularly close to home, where EMEA, um, you'll see the captive numbers as we kind of, we, you, you know, right? Yeah. So captive numbers have decreased by eight percent in the last five years, but there's been a four percent increase in gross premium over the same period. So captives are getting bigger. And I think, you know, I think this is particularly under Solvency 2. You know, Solvency 2, as we know, was designed for and by large European commercial insurers, you know. So it's great to see captives getting bigger, taking advantage of, of that diversification and really, you know, being able to pull those same trick, the levers, you know, as large multinationals. Yeah. Are. I think on the Solvency 2, what's interesting with that, I see it in two two ways. One is that, of course, it was quite, or it is quite onerous regulation for captives, and you've maybe seen some small captives disappear as a result of that. But as you said, those larger, sophisticated captives have gone. Okay, well, we know the captive route is valuable. We already get benefits from it. Let's take even more advantage of that. Let's take advantage more of, of what Solvency brings us from substance, the diversification benefits it can give us if we do expand the portfolio. And obviously, one one thing we'll talk a bit about in a second is is the EB and the third party risk, and that probably might explain or be connected in terms of captives growing their portfolios. Precisely. Right. <laughs> well, uh, you've already touched on it as well, but what I really liked about this year's edition, and I, I've similarly, I've studied your captive landscape reports in various guises over the last five years quite closely and I always look forward to it but I would say that this year's edition is by far and away the most um, comprehensive and I think it has a couple of really unique messages in there uh, so when I read it I don't get to read the stuff as much as I used to but when I did read it it did really stand out to me you've really quite clearly developed the captive at the core message considerably and made the effort in a really clear way to outline and define upfront the tangible benefits and relevance of captives and the relevance they have to key functions across the organization not just a risk and insurance manager so do you think that captive integration 
with the wider business, be it CFO, HR, Treasury, Chief Information Officer, for example, is going to be key to the next stages of captive development. Absolutely. You know, we're seeing it already. Um, we're, we're seeing a wider group of stake, stakeholders becoming more involved, both in the feasibility assessment stage, right, for new captives, and then even in the ongoing management and, and ever the evolution of existing captives. So like some of those perspectives, like the CFO, for instance, you know, obviously very uh, focused on the efficient use of capital and business unit budgetary alignment, but they're all tr- also interested in revenue growth, yeah. um, you know, generation opportunities. So, so that's a perspective. The treasurer, you know, historically focusing on efficiency in cost of capital. Um, balancing that, you know, that cost of risk retention with risk transfer. But, you know, Treasurer hates trapped cash, right? So one of the things that stood out for me was that, you know, we have uh, in the captives that we manage 374 billion in total assets, right? So that's more than the GDP of Ireland, just for some context (laughs) there on that one. In investments, we have 183 uh, uh, billion investments and 37% of this or 67 billion is is actually in intercompany loans back to group. So you're getting that working capital back to group. Another opportunity there is, you know, I was surprised to see how much was actually held in cash. So, you know, treasurers, but, you know, more and more treasurers are becoming involved. And I think a really great um, illustration of that captive visibility across the organisation that you talk about in the the opening to the Captive Landscape Report is is Cummins, who we interviewed in uh, episode seven of the Global Captive podcast. Uh, Judy Ertel, Dana Ferg and Mikey Davidson sat down with me two weeks ago to discuss just how integrated the captive is with their organisation. And if you haven't heard that episode, please do go back and listen because they've actually got a advisory committee below the captive, which brings together all those business functions and business units that get visibility to the captive and can see how they might be able to use it in the future. And I think that's a really great example for other large organisations to follow or consider following. They've got quite some plans, haven't they, Cummins? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a really interesting, really interesting captive. The other highlight that stood out to me um, from the report was on third-party risk. The Marsh portfolio shows a 138% increase in captives writing independent contractor or customer risks between 2014 and 2018, and also a 22% increase in extended warranty products. Regular listeners to the podcast uh, and those who have known me well for a few years know that I'm quite passionate about more captives writing third party and customer risk. And one of the reasons for that is I believe it is a, a really great way to bring captives more to the fore and to, de- to demystify them a little bit as well. What do you think, Lorraine, is driving more captive involvement in, in third party risk? There's a number of factors, but the external ones first. So there's a low growth environment out there for companies, right? So they're looking for new ways to generate revenue and increase their value proposition. Their customers have more choice and moving between suppliers is so much easier these days with them in the digital age. So it's, you know, getting traction with customers is key and making transactions and relationships more sticky, you know, is, 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 an, is a really significant objective. Also, there's sort of increased compliance and shifting regulation that they're making some of those traditional affinity structures maybe a little clunky or more difficult. So all in all, there's kind of, I suppose, an opportunity out there for maybe a transformer or an aggregator type mechanism which can operate in regulated markets efficiently. And, And really then captives, right? So they're just become, as we've been speaking about, they're just becoming more visible in the organization and that the flexibility of that mechanism is better understood. It's like, it's like captive is like the little engine that could, you know, it's just a little engine that can be adapted in so many different circumstances and, and why not third party? And honestly, 
you know, where we see this going is a sort of a natural evolution with digitalization towards blockchain solutions, right? Where, yeah. where you've got a plug and play type thing but where captive is just sitting very much in the, in the background. So that's all happening. Can, one other thing though yeah. I will, because I know Europeans uh, out there will be saying, but, but it, you know, if we write third party, we won't be a captive any longer. And you know, that's absolutely true. So um, if you write third party risk in onshore in the Europe, you, you fall foul of captive um, definition and, and then you don't get captive status. But really, you know, honestly, all that doesn't mean anything capital wise, right? Because no, capital is the same. So really, it just depends. You know, the, the, it'll be resourcing and, um, you know, it just depends on governance and, and substance requirements in the location that you're, at, you're in. I'd be surprised, or I don't believe captive owners should see that as impediment in terms of losing a captive status because, you know, technically, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Lorraine, but within Solvent 2, there actually isn't a clear, clear definition of a captive. I know that Malta, as regulators, definitely do have a clear definition regarding third party risk and what they're what they're called but they're still going to look at the capital requirements as any other insurer and third party will it might have to bring in some further capital requirements because you are dealing with maybe consumer risk but it'll also diversify the portfolio further and at the end of the day i'm, I'm sure that large captive owners don't really care what their captive is classed as as long as it's as, as long as it's delivering value and i i would i know that luxembourg for example when they when they used to give me their capture statistics they just if they considered it a captive in theory, then they would they would count as a captive. Malta are a little bit stricter, and they would they wouldn't count lots of large cap what we would call captives, but write so much third party risk. Bermuda would call it a captive. Cayman would call it a captive. Vermont would call yeah, it a captive. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a definition thing, and really, I feel like we're starting to get the message across more now that third party risk isn't just something to be shied away from, but it's something to be really, really embraced with captors as they, as they continue to grow further. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? It's kind of semantics, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a tool to be used. And yeah, I think we can get a bit caught up on labels. And it used to be a, a problem for me when I counted captives as, as, as part of my exercise at Captive Review, but we would generally find ways around it. So our first interview on the, on the topic of regulators is with Vincent Goss, Chief Captive Analyst at the Arizona Department of Insurance. In my opinion, Arizona has somewhat flown under the radar among the plethora of U.S. domiciles that we have nowadays. As of 30th of April 2019, the state had 123 active captives, and that number includes some really huge, sophisticated captive owners, including Microsoft, Apple, and Costco Wholesale. Vincent began by detailing the 2018 activity in Arizona. Uh, the 2018 calendar year was, was active. I, I characterize it as a solid year of steady growth. We added eight new uh, captives, uh, captive licenses in the, in the year, uh, including one new risk retention group uh, and one protected cell captive insurer, uh, which was new to us. We hadn't add, added any of those for a few years. So that was exciting for us. The rest were mostly pure, pure captive formations. Uh, but I thought it was a good year, uh, very active. Does Arizona have a typical profile? There, most of them are pure captives, of course, and a lot of pure reinsurers as well. We do a lot in the healthcare space, uh, social assistance, um, trucking, construction, finance, finance and insurance. We do a lot of those. There's not really a profile per se, but we do have a lot of large entities, a lot of large captives. We do a lot of premium in their programs, but it's, it's sort of all over the board otherwise. It's kind of hard to discern patterns a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, we do keep some statistics on our website that sort of show what, what industries they're in, we do track that information. We don't have a ton of smaller captives. We have some, um, 
but but we don't that's not necessarily our niche is that just because you're you're quite picky on on what you choose to regulate or you, you don't go out there and actively promote towards that smaller 841b market which some other, some other domiciles have chosen to do rightly or wrongly is, has that been a conscious decision within the department i don't think so i don't i don't think so i think that certainly other domiciles have specialized in that and and uh you know, and they're known for that in the marketplace, so they probably attract them as sort of their first choices. Uh, but we don't really differentiate small from large per se. I mean, I think the fact that we have no premium tax creates a real bang for the buck for the larger captives. Um, it doesn't take long to yeah. to have savings there. Um, whereas the smaller captives, we do have some benefits for them. We, we can waive audits and actuarial work and things like that, and so that helps them save some money. So I think we have some advantages for smaller captives as well, but we haven't really focused on them, but we haven't ignored them either. I think uh, I think we regulate them like just about every other captive. Yeah, and I think that kind of touches on my next point, which is that I would say, and again, this might have just been my personal ignorance uh, over the last five years, but I would say that Arizona, considering the nature of some of the captives you have, obviously Microsoft, Costco, uh, two obvious ones we can name because uh, there's been public information about them, but we, I've always seen Arizona as kind of flying under the radar, almost not doing yourself down, but not doing yourself justice uh, in, in the types and profile of captives you have. Again, was that, has that been a conscious decision within Arizona, or is that something that you're looking to make possibly change in the future? Well, I think, I think we, we certainly... I, Historically, have probably reviewed ourselves, viewed ourselves as as regulators first, and uh, and we take the the job of regulating captives very seriously. And I think that's good for the captive world. You know that there's domiciles that do. Uh, as far as promoting the domicile, you know, we we do work with the association, the Arizona Association, and with the Western Region Captive Insurance Association uh, conference, uh, but we haven't actively had in a promotional type role within the department uh, we are looking to change that we have we have added uh, resources uh, recently uh, and there's been a new a new sort of a focus on trying to come up with ways come come up with a plan come up with some ways some innovative ways creative ways to to, to promote the, the domicile more you know we want people to know that we're we're open for business and we're actively licensing new captives and I think a lot of people know that but I think we can help them you know remind them of it as well so yeah to think of think of you first or at least second um so obviously obviously the big case and the big news concerning Arizona in the last kind of 12 month period has been the Microsoft Washington State dispute concerning Cypress Insurance Company which was or is the pure captive owned by Microsoft domiciled in Arizona and now on the day of recording today, we've, there's been an announcement regarding Costco who have now settled with Washington State concerning their Arizona captive. So what has been the reaction internally within Arizona, whether it be the department or, or more widely, to, to that action by Washington State? Well, there certainly has, it's certainly created a lot of buzz uh, yeah. in the industry and, and among regulators. We, we don't pretend to be, you know, to be able to you know, get into the, the, the heads of the Washington regulator, um, but it's... You know, and it's certainly their prerogative to uh, to regulate the insurance business in their state. Uh, but it certainly has created a lot of buzz, and you know, we we were taken by surprise a little bit by it. Um, and uh, and and I think we made it clear to them that we were taken by surprise by it. Uh, but um, we've been talking with you know, trade associations, you know, SICA for one, uh, the captive Arizona Captive Association, some of the other state captive associations. 
and in the, in the regulator community, um, it's been a topic of conversation as well. We we certainly have a lot of interest in it, as as do I'm sure lots of other captive domiciles that have captives that are you know may or may not be, you know pulled into this situation. Uh, we don't necessarily, and I think the conventional wisdom is it's just because Washington's doing it doesn't necessarily mean every other state that, you know, that could do it is going to jump on the bandwagon, but, but it certainly causes a ripple effect and, and, a, and a concern. Uh, I think, I think thankfully, 20 years ago, if Washington State had behaved in that way, I think there could have been a ripple effect because there was fewer states which were kind of captive friendly. Nowadays, actually, the majority of states are welcoming to captives and understand captive business and promote captive business. There's only a, probably a handful of states, like California, New York, that could possibly kind of follow suit in, in, in the same way. So, so looking ahead then to the rest of 2019 and, and beyond, as I said, you know, Arizona's a, a good quality domicile with, with some good quality captives in it. Where do you see the, the future growth of the domicile going? Where, where do you expect to see, of the conversations you've already had in regards to the pipeline for 2019, where do you expect to see kind of new captive formations come from? Just like year after year, it seems like they come from all over the place. And we've certainly seen a lot of activity around things in the benefits and, you know, employee benefits types things, medical stop loss, those sorts of coverages. Certainly there's interest in cyber coverage and things like that. So in terms of lines of coverage, those are the sorts of things we hear about a lot. Uh, I don't know how many of them will actually come to fruition. That's always a little bit hard to tell. Uh, so far this year we've been very busy, though, uh, a lot of activity, uh, a lot more than usual, it seems like, for the first quarter. Uh, we have a lot of very serious uh, proposals and, and potential you know, prospective captive applicants out there. We expect to get one this week. Um, I think we'll have a lot, a lot of activity in, in, in our in our wheelhouse. You know, the larger captive programs. I think there's there's been it seems to be an uptick in uh, redomestications as well from offshore, especially, uh, but even onshore as well. And I think a lot of captives are reevaluating where they are and what they're doing and. And are they in the right place? And you know, we we expect to get some of those at some point, including this year. Um, I think we'll lose some as well. We have uh, there's always you know captives that sort of run their course, um, perhaps not as uh, useful as they used to be. So we expect to lose some too. But I, I fully expect a very active year. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by R&Q, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. R&Q can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to R&Q. Our captive owner interview this week is with Bill Fitzpatrick, Vice President for Corporate Risk Benefits at Deutsche Post DHL. The primary DHL captive is a reinsurance captive domiciled in Bermuda and combines both life and non-life risks. In the most complimentary way possible, Bill is an old, experienced hand on the topic of employee benefits and captives, and I was fortunate to sit down with him at his offices on Cornhill Central London to discuss the EB topic. Bill began by explaining some of the rationale behind the DHL approach. And the one thing that aligns the benefit program with what we do on the PNC side is how we finance risk. 
And in any insurance cover that we look at, what we're trying to do is maximize the financing efficiencies, minim- minimize the premium that we're paying for those, those covers. The other item that we take into account is whether it's a frequency risk or a severity risk. When you're moving multiple packages around the globe or whether you have 520,000 employees, we consider those frequency risks and risks that we want to retain ourselves and ultimately put into our captive. So I would say that what, what draws us together, what makes us different between the non-life and the life insurance side is that if you look at any insurance company, you normally have two companies, one on the PNC side, one on, one on the employee benefit side. So we emulate that strategy because the terminology is different, the customer is different, and the way you look at the ultimate risk that ultimately is going into your captive is also very different. And so when did DHL make the decision to implement an international employee benefits uh, program using the captive, and why? So, so DHL first looked at utilizing the captive back in 1995. Now, they were, were one of the first to go out and look at a global program. Now, before that, there had been some one-country deals or two-country deals that had been done with employee benefits. So when, when my boss, who is Hugh O'Neill, looked at this opportunity, he basically said he wanted to do a multi-country program okay, across as many as the DHL countries as possible. And the intent was is to get as much of the business into the captive as quickly as possible because we didn't view this as an underwriting risk. We viewed it as a timing risk. So as any good insurance company knows, spread of risk across multiple geographical areas is going to give you the greatest chance of being able to predict risk on an ongoing basis. The incentive that was provided to the individual business units to participate was basically a immediate 25% off their current premium rates and no change in plan design. So there was a huge financial incentive for the different DHL entities to come into the program and to participate. And that's why it really grew so quickly. So on the on the program and, and how it grew how it grew then how how has it grown has it grown from a number of territories that have been increasingly brought into it or just number of individuals that have been brought into it and how have you managed that that growth? Well, it's 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 a bit of a tricky question because uh, DHL used to be a privately held company, and back in two thousand three it was acquired by Deutsche Post. So it then became part of Deutsche Post, and Deutsche Post eventually acquired two other companies and grew by acquisition. Now, when I started with the company back in 2006, the gross rent and premium, just attributable to the employee benefit program, was about 35 million uh, euros. Now, based on the growth we've had with the additional business units that have come in, the program currently stands at 120 million euros, covers about 110 countries, and about 250,000 of the 500,000 DHL employees around the globe. Well, that is quite a significant premium growth, and there's lots of captives that don't write any employee benefits and have got a a small fraction of that premium. So just from employee benefits, it really gives us an idea of the size of the program. What are the benefits that the International Employee Benefits Program has brought DHL as a company, but also its employees? Well, there's a, there's a couple different things that it's brought. Number one, we continue to apply the break-even pricing methodology, methodology which, I, which I said is somewhere between 20 to 25% less than what you can get through local market alternatives. That would be number one. Number two, since we are taking 100% of the risk, it does give us the ability 
to make decisions on certain claims that an insurer would either limit or deny, and we make a decision to pay those claims on an ex basis. So by minimizing the cost and offering the broadest cover possible, we feel it deeply creates a significant advantage for employee attraction and retention. You've mentioned the growth already, but is there a constant review of the program, ways to either improve it, to grow it further, or even take mar- uh, coverages or markets out? Well, I'll address the growth uh, element first. If you look at the number of countries, we've, we're pretty much at about 96% market share of the available business out there. The countries that aren't participating would be countries that are more difficult, usually due to a regulatory environment, places like Brazil, India, or whereas we're not working with one of the top five insurers in a given market, such as Turkey. So if we can't meet the service levels compared to a local carrier, then that does create some problems, some problems for us. In terms of organic growth, if you take into account that medical trend is averaging somewhere between 8 to 10% per year on 120 million euros worth of business, you're growing somewhere between close to 10 million euros per year just based on those trend factors. So we do have organic growth. And we have looked to put in a prevention and mitigation strategy to try to bend that trend line, which we see as a burden not only for the organization itself, but ultimately for our employees from a costing perspective. So that's really great information on the success and the process that DHL have been through on implementing a very sophisticated and and huge international employee benefits program. Bearing that in mind, are you surprised that so many large multinationals have been slow to catch up on this approach or are just beginning to we 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 hear about huge growth i'm always meeting captive owners of very very large companies who are just beginning this journey are you surprised that it's taken this long for the eb gospel to to have spread to these kinds of organizations i I think we've actually seen quicker growth with european companies as opposed to u.s companies and and one of the reasons i think that would be the case is europe doesn't have the burden of the U.S. healthcare system, which, as you know, is significant in terms of, of cost. A family of four cost around $30,000 for just healthcare cover. So I think Europe has spent more time looking at their global risk, understanding that they need to get control of this, and, and I think you've seen greater growth on the European side. I think now with healthcare and where it's growing from a trending perspective, I think more U.S. companies understand the long-term impact from a financial standpoint and are getting much more aggressive in terms of getting their non-U.S. subsidiaries into a captive or some type of financial arrangement, whether that's pooling, global underwriting, or captive itself. Lorraine, I believe you know Bill quite well and his program at Deutsche Post DHL is certainly one of the most advanced international employee benefits programs out there. Is that kind of example the poster story for captives and benefits? Well, I, I, I do know Bill very well. Um, so we've been on many panels together over the years. And yet, <clears throat> I would say the DHL story is the poster child, right? So, you know, EB journey to a captive for multinationals requires operational transformation. And, and in those er, back in those early days, it really took pioneers like Hugh O'Neill that Bill mentioned to really see the potential, I guess, and the opportunity. And 
you know, drive that change through their organisation by sheer force of nature, I yeah. suppose, you know, back in the olden times. It's so 120 million in premium and yeah. 250,000 employees, like that's that's just huge, right? So not, not everyone's going to achieve that scale in their captive. Um, so maybe some of the statistics from our report. Um, well, I should have actually probably said this right at the beginning, but the report doesn't include the JLT captives, right? So, so I think it's about 1,200 or thereabouts. But of that, right, 14% of the captives that within are, you know, benchmarked in the report, that's approximately 150, I think. They're, they're writing some level of EB. So that would be life, medical, um, medical stop loss or multinational EB. And that's a total of about 7 billion in premium. So it's, you know, it's, it's getting some scale. Yeah. But what's important as well is what's coming down the pipeline, because as you know, and, you know, and as Bill <laughs> sort of outlined, it takes a while to get, you know, to get that get it into into a captive so we know that an additional 31 percent of our captives our captive owners are considering or are likely to consider writing eb in the future so that's about 400 captives so good bit of runway left on this you know well, exactly and that's a great area that just shows the continued relevance and continued use on and evolution of captives and I was struck when I was in uh, the European Captive Forum in November I was struck by the amount of conversations I had with very very large companies with very very sophisticated captive owners who had only just started considering it Um, and it just showed to me and it demonstrates even further from your own numbers there from from the Marsh portfolio that there is a huge pipeline for this so while captive numbers may be relatively flat in terms of growth in Europe the premium growth as you mentioned earlier is going to continue to go up and that's largely going to be driven by EB. Mm-hmm. Yeah absolutely. And as we said the percentages of EB growth in captives are, are quite impressive but they do come from a, a low base. Why do you believe there is now a rush in the last couple of years on, on this on this uh, EB implementation? Honestly I think it starts with the economics, very simple economics uh, as Bill mentioned right so global growth rate is about three and a half percent. Medical inflation is 8 to 10 percent globally and and much higher in some parts of the world and benefits really were historically a bit of a black hole on the balance sheet um, for multinationals but but most multinationals in particular Europeans as Bill said um, they have greater transparency they have greater um, understanding of what's out there and they realize the scale and and then on the other side we have employees right employee we're living longer we're living longer through medical advances so employee expectations of benefits are increasing so really between the cost and the expectation uh, you know employers are facing a burning platform right so something has to be done but there's evolution or the sorry, there's evidence of an evolution beyond beyond simple cost reduction, right? So we we see other value drivers for captives in the EB space, and a couple of examples of those would be, for instance, voluntary benefits in the US, right? So n- not a lot doing this right now. I think there was 850,000 in premium that we've seen flowing into the captives we manage right now. But there's loads of opportunity in this in the US. And adding this to a captive, you know, it really is. It's a win-win all around, right? So HR gets to deliver enhanced benefits at no cost to the, to the company. The employee gets benefits, you know, not widely available in the market at a, at a better rate and some financial security because, you know, in the U.S., even with benefit coverage, there's a lot of significant deductibles and, um, and, and policy limits. So really, you know, there's still a lot of that employee potentially has to cover, in, in, you know, in a, in a situation. And then thirdly, the risk manager, you know, the risk manager gets captive growth and they get third party business. So that, that's something that we kind of think that there's potential in. And then the other area is 
where captives are being established as a mechanism to provide better or you know manuscripted coverages and an example of that might be IVF treatments right so you know employers providing that and that's happening in the west coast of the US right so uh, so the captive then has acting as this mechanism or within the the toolbox to help facilitate talent attraction and retention well as I said earlier as well I think it goes back to the comment I made about third party risk that anything that we can start to use captives for which lifts the veil on them so to speak maybe makes employees uh, people wider people within the organization whether it's business units or departments interacting with the captive or even just employees on the ground finding out oh we do have actually our own insurance company which the company is now using for these benefits i think that's only going to be another tool and another avenue to make captives a bit more um, well-known higher profile and more wide universally accepted because we know that sometimes organizations don't want to talk about them so much for for whatever reason so i think anything like this which can make the captive a much more core function within the organization as a really active subsidiary is only going to be great for for captive development in the future well that almost brings us to an end of episode eight of the global captive podcast thank you to all of our guests uh vincent goss in arizona bill fitzpatrick at dhl and to you lorraine stack from marsh captive solutions see you next time captives